Amen. 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 I don't know about you guys, but so edifying to hear God's word recited by God's people in that way. Amen. Praise God. So edifying. We're going to give our attention to um, verses 18 to 20, but before we do, does anybody here need a Bible? If you need a Bible, just raise your hands, and we uh, have ushers here who are passing out Bibles. Hold them up there high so they can see you. Okay. There we go. And if you do not own a Bible or you need a new Bible, we want that to be our present to you. So please, uh, if you need a Bible, take that Bible. We've got one more hand up here, Faith. If you need a Bible, two hands. If you need a Bible, take that Bible. Write your name in it. Make it your own. And just as we are trying to hide God's word in our heart by memorizing it, we invite you to join us in doing that as well. We invite you to give your life to this book because this book will give you life. It will give you eternal life. And so um, do please take that as our gift. And uh, turn to page 932 if you're using one of those Bibles that we just gave out. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me pray again. Father, we thank you for how you've been pressing this word into our hearts, how you've been instructing us as a church. And we pray that you would press it further, press it deeper into our hearts even now. Give us understanding, O oh Lord, we pray, and uh, help us to live by, by your word, by every word that comes from your mouth. Again, let us hear it with faith. Let us preach it with faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question for you this morning. Do you think the average Christian thinks enough about finishing the race? Or would you say that most Christians are occupied, more occupied with living this life than with finishing this life and looking forward to the life to come? When you think about the average Christian, do you think the average Christian acts in such a way that demonstrates that they believe their life will end and that there is a race to win? Or do we think the average Christian, Christian acts as if they will live forever? Do we have the sense that Christians have any sort of awareness of the risk of not finishing? In almost 25 years of pastoral ministry, if I've learned one thing, it's this. Not everyone who starts the race finishes the race. A great many do finish and finish well, praise God. There are lots of Christians, though, who never give it a thought. And many of those do not cross the finish line. Honestly, I think we're living in a time of increased turning away from the faith. Both pastors and lay people are turning back to the world. And every faithful Christian and every faithful pastor I know is troubled by that. So one of the most necessary questions we can ask ourselves is this. Am I living in a way that gives me confidence that I will finish the race and finish it well? 
Am I living in a way that gives me confidence that I will finish this Christian race and finish it well? Or do I have reason to think? Does my life give me reason to think that I may not finish? That, I think, is what's hanging over verses 18 to 20 in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul has a concern for the church in Ephesus that its members finish, but he also has a concern, as we'll see, um, for Timothy himself, that Timothy would finish the race. And in these three verses, I want us to sort of consider two points, two observations here. Number one, I want us to see the three keys to finishing well. That Paul gives us in chapter in verse 18, in the first half of verse 19, three keys to finishing well. And then in the rest of this section, Paul gives us, number two, three signs of losing the war. Three signs of losing the war. And as we study this, I pray that God would quicken our spirits and enliven us that we might press toward the mark, toward the high call, that we might finish well. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. See here now these three keys to winning the war. The first is, might we put it this way, get yourself spiritual parents who will check your walk. Get yourself some spiritual parents who will check your walk. That's how I'm summarizing Paul's address to Timothy there in verse 18. When he calls Timothy my my true child, back in verse 2, he comes back to that parent-child language in verse 18, Timothy, my child. The father-son bond between these two was strong. Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. Timothy looked up to Paul. Timothy studied under Paul, learned what he would learn about the ministry from the apostle Paul, traveled with him, suffered with him, rejoiced with him, and all of that experience together is now freighted in these tender words. And Paul writes, really, to check Timothy. He says in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you. But what charge? Well, you remember the charge back in verse 3, verses 3 to 7, where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, now the reason I left you in Ephesus was that you would um, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and English genealogies, which really promote only controversy or speculation rather than the stewardship that comes from God. He says, I've left you there with this charge to check those persons that they don't sort of go off, go after other teaching, basically, and myths and genealogies. And he says back there in verse 5, that the reason for this charge, the aim of this charge is love, which issues from a, a, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. That's what Paul wants formed in the life of the church at Ephesus, a, a, a love, that church to abound in love and the kind of love that, that sort of springs up from pure heart, good conscience, and genuine faith. 
And he points out there in verse 6, now, some have already swerved from this, and they have wandered away into vain discussions, right? And, and he talks there in, in verses 6 and 7 about the, the, they're wanting to be teachers of the law, but they don't, they don't understand what they're talking about. That's the charge that Paul gives Timothy, beginning back in verse 3. But now notice something in verse 18. He comes back and he says, this charge I entrust to you, my child, Timothy, my child. And then he says this. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So in verse 18, he's not really speaking again about the church sort of keeping this charge. He's talking now personally to Timothy about Timothy's personal warfare, about Timothy's need um, to keep this charge, to, as it were, watch over himself. See, we need spiritual parents. If we're going to finish well, we need spiritual parents who help us to keep what an older generation of Christians used to call self-watch. Help us to keep an active and effective self-watch. And here in verse 18, this is applicable not just, as we've been saying, to individual Christians. This is necessary for the pastor's soul, too. He's writing to Timothy as a pastor that Timothy might not preach to the people what they need to do and neglect his own soul, but that he might also keep a careful watch on his soul. This is so important. Paul comes back to it again in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. You can flip over a couple pages there if you want to, where Paul says it plainly, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Right? He's telling him to watch himself. And later, near the end of his life, Paul addresses this not just to the individual pastor, Timothy, but he would say very similar things to the entire eldership there at Ephesus. When he comes through Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, his last time through that city, the elders gather to meet him. It's a a tear-filled scene. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31, this is what the apostle Paul says to the elders there in Ephesus. He says, verse 28 of Acts 20, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. See what he's saying there? Watch yourself. Make sure you're keeping this charge to persevere, to continue in the faith. Teach the church to do that, and you elders do that with each other. Watch over one another. And that, beloved, is is a significant aspect of a healthy church life. Remember, we began this series and this whole year, we've been thinking about what it is to be a church. And we've been reminding ourselves after two years of kind of bedside Baptist church and 
and tuning in online and not being able to gather, we've been trying to remind ourselves of, of what it is to be the church and what it is that God expects us to, to do in this Christian community. And here, what we're seeing is one of the things we need the church for is self-watch, to be careful with our souls individually and with each other's souls that we are continuing in the faith so that we might finish the race. Now, nowadays, I hear lots of Christians emphasizing self-care. And there's nothing wrong with self-care. So this is not me bashing self-care. But sometimes Christians emphasize self-care when they should be emphasizing self-watch. Because self-care without self-watch will end up in self-indulgence. And self-indulgence rarely ends any place except sin. We live in a culture that coddles. We give out participation trophies from the time we're two years old. And um, we live in a culture that's highly kind of therapeutic in its orientation to life. And so everything is meant to be soft and cuddly, etc. And the one thing you will not want to do in a culture like that is be tough with yourself when it comes to self-watch. And so we want to be people, yes, who care for ourselves, that, that, amen, hallelujah, but part of real care for ourselves is watching ourselves and what's happening with our souls, whether we are drifting or whether we are continuing as disciples in that way. And the Lord himself has structured the life of the church in such a way that there should be a regular rhythm to this self-watch. This morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And what do we do each month when we come to the supper? Well, part of what we should do is confess our sins, is to take a moment and discern our relationship, the state of our relationship with Christ, and the state of our relationship with the rest of the church. The table is a place where um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we would judge ourselves, self-watch, we would not be judged by God. But it's also a place where people who don't do that self-watch have sometimes eaten and drank the meal in a way that's brought judgment upon themselves. Right? So the rhythm of the church itself has these periods where we gather and we're meant to practice self-watch. But not just the rhythms of the church. We want a regular watchfulness in our individual lives and in our friendships. Right? We need to practice self-watch more than once a month. Right? It's, a, it's a poor prayer life. It's a poor spiritual life that only confesses its sins once a month at the Lord's Supper. Right? This, this should be daily practice for us, that we draw near to the Lord and thank him again that he has died for all of our sins. And with great freedom and great confidence, confess our sins and seek his help to overcome them, to live more righteously. Right? So when we become members here at this church, we went through our, our church covenant earlier. We have a section in our covenant, which is basically a summary of what we think the Bible teaches about how Christians ought to live together. We, we make a promise like this to ourselves, to God, and to each other. We make a promise that goes something like this. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. So we should have seasons of self-watch, like at the supper, and we should have a sort of regular sort of um, relational community that includes self-watch. 
that we don't drift, that we don't fail to finish the race. And one of the things I love about Pastor Tim's leadership of our elders is how constantly he keeps before us this practice of self-watch. So almost all of our elders' meetings will begin with Tim structuring some discussion where we give a sort of update on how we're doing, how we're doing in our marriages, how we're doing with our children, how things are going with work. The brother be getting all in your business. One day he's asking us questions about our health and losing weight and how many steps we took. You know, like, drink water and mind your own business, man. <laughs> and spiritually, most importantly, how are we doing? So that, that our, our work of caring for you begins with this work of watching over each other, right? So we, we want a culture from top to bottom and east to west, right, that, that lovingly and tenderly features this kind of self-watch. And, and what I want to encourage you to do here as we see model between Paul and Timothy is find yourself a spiritual parent and be a spiritual parent to someone that we might practice this self-watch, that we might check on each other's walk. That's, that's key number one. Key number two, remember the prophecies made about you. Remember the prophecies made about you. Notice Paul gives this, Timothy this charge. He says there, in accordance with the previous prophecies made about you. Now, now Paul mentions these prophecies twice in this letter. Here in verse 18, but also over in chapter 4, verse 14. Look, look over there with me. The Apostle Paul writes there, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, we don't know exactly when these prophecies were made uh, over Timothy. He just says there previously. And we don't know specifically the content of these prophecies, what, what was said. And um, we don't know if they were the kind of prophecies that predict the future or were the kind of prophecies that were just telling forth the truth uh, of Scripture to God's people. We don't want to have much context here, but we do know that these were prophecies made by elders in the church when they laid hand on Timothy. And by these prophecies, some gift was recognized and conferred uh, to Timothy. And we know that the early church in the New Testament practiced the gift of prophecy. We got chapters like 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Thessalonians where we're told not to, neglect, not to despise the gift of prophecy. And we know one other thing, that whatever these prophecies were, whatever their content was, they were said, they were meant to guide Timothy's life. They had a kind of functional authority. Paul is saying what he's saying to Timothy about this trust, this charge, in accordance with or because of or, or consistent with these prophecies. And most importantly, we know how those prophecies were to be used in Timothy's soul. Notice now, they were used to help Timothy continue in the faith and in the ministry. In verse 18, Paul brings up these prophecies as a way of encouraging Timothy to keep that self-watch that we were talking about to continue in the faith in a healthy way. In chapter 4, verse 14, Paul brings up those prophecies telling Timothy to stir up his gift and to continue in his ministry. The goal of the prophecies was Timothy's strength in the Lord, his edification, his endurance in Christian life and Christian ministry. 
if we're going to finish well, we need to know something about the prophecies made about us. Now, you may be sitting there right now saying, well, how does this apply to us? Nobody's made any prophecy over me. There may be one or two of you who have had that experience of some individual coming to you and prophesying some sort of thing, but most of us have not had the church lay hands on us and the elders of the church prophesy something about us in the way that's happened here with Timothy. So how do we apply this? Well, I think the, the key is in that word prophecy itself. That word is used about 14 times in the New Testament, once in Matthew, once in Romans. Uh, it's used a couple of times uh, in a couple of other letters. It's used twice in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, six times in the book of Revelation. Most of those, four of those around chapter 22, chapter 21, 22. Of all the references in the book of Revelation and in the two references in 2 Peter, that word is used almost as a synonym for the scriptures. So often, when the New Testament is talking about prophecy, not always, but often, when the New Testament is talking about prophecy, it's talking about the Word of God, the written Word of God. Now, in that sense, every one of us have had prophecy spoken over us. Every one of us has had the Word of God address our lives and address God's will for our lives. And every one of us has, in the Word of God, instruction teaching, exhortation, admonishment, which is meant to help us endure in the Christian life, endure in the Christian faith. So when we are trying to finish the race, the Gatorade we need is the Word of God, right? The, the, the replenishing, refreshing drink that we need is the water of life, right? We won't finish well if we don't keep our nose in the book. We won't finish well if the book doesn't live in our hearts, dwelling in us and causing us to think God's thoughts after him, right? And to sing God's praises and to know what God has said about us. So let me give you just a couple of prophecies in the scriptures about you, about each and every one of us. Number one, the first thing that's said about you is that you are made in the image and likeness of God. Your creation is unique among all of other creation. Nothing else in the universe is made the way you are made. In the image and likeness of God, you bear the stamp of God's own being in your soul. In fact, it is God's breath that gives us life, that's made us a living soul. I pray that we would learn to hold on to that truth in every way that we think about ourselves, that we not lose sight of the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image and likeness of God. Here's the second thing this book of prophecy says about you, says about me. That despite the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God, which means we have worth that we cannot count and dignity that cannot be destroyed, we are also people who have rebelled against God, right? So our first parents, Adam and Eve, made in the image and likeness of God, um, in Genesis chapter 3, decide to do something contrary to the Word of God. God said, don't eat from the fruit of this tree 
Adam and Eve being seduced by the devil, being seduced by the enemy, decide to eat from the tree anyway, and, and all of the creation is affected by sin, including you and me. Now, the image of God is not destroyed. It's not completely done away with. It's now twisted a bit, but it's still there. We're still people who are of immense value in the sight of God because we're made in his likeness. But we are people who are also been twisted a bit because of sin. Here's the third thing the scripture says. Because of that sin, as we sang a moment ago, justice demands our death. We should die because of our sin. And not just a physical death, but also a spiritual death. We should be separated from God forever because of our sin and suffer the judgment of God forever because of our sin against an infinite and holy God. But praise God, the story and the prophecy doesn't stop there. God promised that he would do something about our sin. He promised that he would do something to sort of, as it were, take us back to Eden, actually forward to a new city a new Jerusalem whose foundations are not made with the hands of men, that in order to be in that city, God would do something in order to make us right for that city. He would send a Savior who would take away our sin, who would be judged for our sin, but who also would rise from the grave and give us eternal life through faith in him. And so God did that very thing he promised. He sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, which he did on Calvary's cross. And on the cross, he is punished in our place. He dies a literal death because that's what we deserve to do. And he's there three days in the grave, and God raises him from the grave. On the third day, he raises him in the power of the resurrection, and this same Jesus is alive. He is alive. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is coming again to gather all of us made in God's image, distorted that image, but now being renewed, the Bible says, in the image and likeness of God through Christ. And when we see him, the Bible says we will be like him. And we will be with him. And we will behold him. And that will be our future forever to be in the presence of the Son of God and God the Father and the Spirit of God for all of eternity, renewed in the image and likeness of God in a city in which there is no sin, there is no death, there, there is nothing that, that is fallen or broken. There's only pleasure and joy and love and peace and righteousness forevermore. That's what the Bible says about you. That's the prophecy spoken over you, along with many other things. But if you get nothing else, particularly if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, oh, get that. God says you are made for him. And God says you've been going your own way in sin. And God says he's going to take care of your sin problem, which he did through Christ. And he calls you now to turn away from sin, to turn back to him by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and Savior and following him in faith. Don't stray from the prophecy of this book, especially its teachings about Jesus and what he's done for our salvation. You want to finish the race? You want to win the war? Keep believing the prophecy. Keep believing in Jesus. Here's the third key. Third key to winning the race. Number one, 
Um, number one was get you a spiritual parent who will check you. Number two was remember the prophecies about you. Number three is now fight, fight, wage war, particularly for faith and a good conscience. You see there, Paul says now that these prophecies were made about you so that by them you might wage the good warfare. And then he defines what that warfare is, holding faith and a good conscience, right? So Paul now is instructing us on, on how to finish. And the third leg of this relay, the third aspect of this warfare, the third key to winning is precisely this, that we now must fight. The Christian life is a spiritual war. It is not roses and primrose paths. I don't even know what a primrose path is, but it sounds cushy. It's not that. It's not that. Beloved, and, and no shade, it's not even your best life now. In, in some worldly sense of material comfort and ease and pain-free living. How many of us have experienced pain as Christians? How many of us have suffered as Christians? Right? We're not exempt from the suffering of a broken world, and we're not exempt from the suffering that we cause ourselves. In, in our own rebellion and foolishness and, and weakness and frailty, this is not the best life there is to come. We fight in this life, beloved. We knuckle up, and we face three adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we got to fight a hostile world out there. we got to fight a prowling enemy seeking to devour us, and we got to fight the enemy within, our own flesh, our own sinful desires. We're fighting on, on almost every front, but we're fighting a war that's already been won. The Lord has already defeated our enemies. He crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. He has overcome the world. He's put our flesh to death through faith in him. He's already won the victory for us. It's for us now to stand in that victory, to fight for it, and to let no one take it from us. We're like the last battalion in an army that's already conquered a land. We're just kind of going through the land now, finding those few remaining rebels who don't know the war has been lost. We have won, but yet we must keep fighting to make our victory all the more sure, all the more complete. And we fight this warfare not with carnal weapons. Notice now, he says, we fight this warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith continuing to believe in Jesus and to walk by faith in him, to trust him. I don't know if you thought about this, but, but those decisions we have to make about how we're going to live, what we're going to purchase, you know, whatever the case is going to be, how we're going to respond at work or respond to our children or a spouse, all of those decisions are, are part of our spiritual warfare. Do we, do we make those decisions in faith, trusting God, or do we make them in the flesh? Or do we make them in accordance with the world? Or do we make them following the seductions of Satan? This is a warfare, beloved. And, and there's no Switzerland. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no place that's kind of, okay, everybody come here and put down their weapons. No, keep yourself armed until Jesus comes. Fight the good fight of faith. Continue in the faith. This is how we overcome the world, according to 1 John 5. But then we also want to keep a good conscience. The conscience is that little voice that God has put in us all that speaks to us about right and wrong. 
You do something wrong and the conscience starts saying, now you, you know you shouldn't have done that. Sometimes even before we do it, the conscience will speak up like, that ain't right, that ain't right, that ain't right. We're doing it anyway, I told you that wasn't right. And the conscience, when it's healthy, it gives us a sense of right or wrong according to God's word. When it's not healthy, the conscience could give us a sense of right and wrong according to something else, according to how the world thinks about right and wrong, according to our own personal preferences and how we justify our own sinful desires. So the conscience has to be trained. It has to be informed by the word of God. And that's how we keep a good conscience. And we keep that good conscience by obeying what we find in the word of God. And when we stumble, confessing that as sin. Obedience and confession, simple ways to keep a good conscience before God. That's how we fight this war. That's how we win this war. And we do that again with the promise of something like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. To cleanse the conscience by the remembrance of what Christ has done for us and going on in that victory. So with those three keys, get yourself a spiritual parent who will help you watch your walk. Remember the word of God. Remember the prophecies about you. And fight this war, keeping a faith and a good conscience. Let me ask you that question again. How certain are you that you're going to finish? Is there evidence from our lives that we will finish this race well? Well, let's look at the other side of the coin. For Paul, as he often does, he gives us some teaching in the positive, and then he gives us some teaching, uh, that same teaching in the negative. And so in the second half of verse 19 and, and verse 20, he gives us three signs of losing the war. This is what it looks like when we are maybe not going to finish the race and win the prize. These three signs are all rejections. Verse 19, the second part of verse 19 uh, begins with, by rejecting this. What does this refer to? I think it refers to everything he just said in verses 18 and 19. And so he's, he's saying, now, if you reject those three keys, those are going to be the signs that you're losing. Right? So by rejecting spiritual parents, spiritual authority, spiritual leadership in our lives, godly folks who are further along in the faith, trying to help us keep a watch on our lives, if we reject that, if we become hard-headed and stiff-necked, we're losing. Or number two, if we reject prophecy, if we reject the scripture, that's, that we reject God's word about us, beloved, there's no way to reject God's word about us and win with God. We're rejecting God's word. That's a sign, beloved. However rational, however fine-sounding the argument, however pleasing it is in terms of what we wish to do, if we are rejecting God's word, we're losing. We're failing. We've gone from a sprint to kind of jogging a little bit, walking. Pretty soon we'll find ourselves standing on the corner and then sitting. It is by rejecting the word of God, the prophecy, that certain persons don't finish. Number three, but then also rejecting faith and a good conscience. 
right? So God keeps speaking to us. He's not without a witness. You can reject God's word if you want to, but he'll, that's still, that voice in there will still keep talking to you. You ain't had a quiet time in six months, but you also ain't had six minutes where God hadn't been telling you what's right and wrong. He is not without a witness. Now, we reject that conscience and we reject the walk and live by faith. We are, by definition, losing because the whole battle is won by faith. And Paul says, let me give you some examples. There's Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples of persons who have rejected all of this. When I said certain persons back in verse 4, and I referred to certain persons around verse 6, this is who I was talking about. I was talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander, two men with Greek names. So maybe they are Greek converts to the faith, right? And now they've come into the faith and they want to be teachers of the law. Wasn't even their religion, wasn't even their culture, but they're going to be the ones to tell everybody how to think about it. Right? And so they. If we date 2 Timothy around 64, 65 AD, uh, near the end of Paul's life, and if we take an earlier dating of 1 Timothy around 55, 56, 57, somewhere in there, then there's maybe five, six, seven years between these two letters, and these men have not repented in that time. Notice what Paul says about Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. He writes there, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith some. You see how Paul regards them? Paul regards them as a kind of cancer in the church. They are like gangrene. They are that disease which is killing the flesh in the body, and if it's unchecked, will continue to spread to others, and they are overthrowing the faith of others. That's Alexander, or Hymenaeus, excuse me. Then he mentions Alexander in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. There the Apostle Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. You see, these men continued to oppose the gospel and the truth, and they continued to hurt the faith of other people. Now, what is the church supposed to do with people like this? Well, that's what I think we get in verse 20. I think in verse 20, we get Paul's kind of shorthand for what we today call church discipline. He says in verse 20, I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That language of I have handed them over to Satan, we see also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is addressing there a man in sexual immorality, and the church has been kind of thinking of itself as liberal and progressive and accepting of that sexual sin. And Paul says, no, no, no. When you gather, put this man out of your fellowship. Hand him over to Satan so that he may learn not to sin and his, and his flesh to be saved on the day of Christ. And he's saying the same thing here about Hymenaeus and Alexander. I've handed them over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. Now, there are two things we should observe there in terms of the church's responses to these men. Number one, we should observe the seriousness of this sin. It's reflected in the very notion 
that the apostle would take someone who was a part of Christ's church and Christ's family and hand them over to the adversary. I mean, when you think about it, can you think about, can you imagine a more serious response than to sort of say, we withdraw our fellowship, we withdraw our affirmation of your Christian testimony, and we leave you in the world outside of the ark of the church to suffer the floods and the rains of Satan's torment, of Satan's warfare against you. This is serious. It's serious because souls are at stake. But then number two, we should observe this. The purpose of that is not punishment, but redemption. That they may learn not to blaspheme. Sometimes the only place you learn not to blaspheme is out there with blasphemers. Right? They, they, need, they need a change of mind. They need to repent. They need to go from slandering God and slandering God's gospel and overthrowing the faith of God's people to recognizing that was wrong. I am wrong. I am guilty. I need that grace and mercy that we've been singing about. And in that recognition, like the prodigal son who comes to his senses, they would turn and come back to God and come back to grace and come back to forgiveness. Sometimes, beloved, the church finds itself caring for people who cannot be convinced of God's grace and forgiveness and their need of it in any other way than to be abandoned to their sin. Everything else dulls their conscience. So to treat these men like they are preaching the truth would be to affirm them in their wayward sin. To treat these men like they are building up the church would be to affirm them in their destruction of the church and in the destruction of themselves. That is an unloving thing to do. So the language of hand them over to Satan is jarring to our ears, but it's because, number one, this is serious, and number two, sometimes the only way to reclaim people for Christ is to give them over to their sin, is to practice that discipline that withdraws fellowship and withdraws affirmation of testimony and says, you're not living like a Christian. Your actions do not match your testimony. And that you might see it after we have made all these pleas with you, we have to step back and away so that you might feel what it's like to be in the world without the protection of Christ. That's the only way to deal with people like that. I was reading this and thinking about this and trying to think about how to illustrate it. And the Lord took me back um, to my intermediate school days, sixth and seventh grade. I went to Paul Lawrence Dunbar Intermediate School in the big city of Lexington, North Carolina. And um, there was an assistant principal there named Mr. Bowie. His nickname was Bam Bam Bowie. He had taught my older brothers and sisters. He had been around for a long time, and everybody knew Mr. Bowie. You mention Mr. Bowie's name, and somebody, next thing you hear, people say, Bam Bam Bowie. Now, he was called Bam Bam Bowie because he was the, the assistant principal in charge of discipline. And in those days, you could, you could whoop a child's butt in school. Today, that's called abuse. Then it was called parenting, all right? 
And I went to school when you could get a spanking in school, a paddling in school, and get another one at home because mom and dad was embarrassed you got one in school, right? Now, Mr. Bam Bam Bowie's legend just grew over the years more and more. Nobody would mess around with Mr. Bowie. Mr. Bowie walked down the halls. I don't care what kind of foolishness you were into. When he came down the hall, man, everybody was straight. Everybody was good. But every once in a while, there were knuckleheads who would try and test their teachers. They'd be in the class, cutting up, wouldn't sit in their seat, talking, so on, so on, so forth. You would warn them about going to see Mr. Bowie, and they, you know, they'd try to shug that off. They're real tough. And every once in a while, there'd be some child that got sent from the classroom to Mr. Bowie's office. Long, slow walk. Get to Mr. Bowie's office. Mr. Bowie would know what the complaint was. He'd talk with the teacher. And Mr. Bowie would know what the discipline was going to be. It was going to be a paddling. And, and, and you got kind of exercise during the paddling, too, because you had to stretch and touch this line on the chalkboard. Yeah. Yeah. So you stretching, talking that line, uh, touching that line. He would get his paddle. His paddle was as famous as he was. It looked like a, one of them breadboards that, that some women have like charcuterie or something, a long paddle, except he had drilled, he had drilled holes in it. So that paddle would make contact and grab you, right, in them little holes. <laughs> you went to see Bam Bam Bowie one time, one time, and then for the rest of the year, you were back in your classroom, Sitting down, minding your business, keeping your mouth closed. Well, you didn't sit right away. It took a little while before you could sit. But once you sat, that was it. You were in that seat with your mouth closed the whole while. You learned in Mr. Bowie's office not to cut a fool in the classroom. Because to be kicked out of the classroom to go to Mr. Bowie's office would bring a kind of discipline you really didn't want. That's what Christ gives us in the church with church discipline. We are in the classroom of Christ. And we should be honoring and obeying our Lord. But if we get to the point where we're a little too big for our britches and we don't want to listen to anybody else, we want to listen to God's word, we want to listen to the spiritual leadership in our lives, we want to go our own way, and no one can appeal and draw us back, all that's left is to be sent to a different office, to be handed over to Satan, so that in the buffeting and the beating that comes from the world, we would learn not to blaspheme not to sin. And that, beloved, is God's grace and mercy too when it has to happen. Well, how do we apply this to our, our life and our world? Well, the first time I preached through First Timothy, it's probably 10 years ago. And I, I look back at my notes uh, thinking about this. And 10 years ago, there was, there was no talk of deconstruction in the church. Wasn't even a term, really, that anybody was bouncing around. And nowadays, particularly if you spend time as a Christian on social media and stuff, it seems like everybody's deconstructing. And, beloved, I, I just want to suggest to you that maybe there's some wisdom in this text for us for a lot of what's going on in the name of deconstruction. And let me put it this way. There's a real difference between deconstructing and departing. Deconstruction has been a thing at least since the Reformation. We didn't use that language. The Reformers didn't use that language. But, but you, you all may know the, the little rallying cry, simple reformanda, always reforming according to the word of God. 
that the reformers saw themselves as taking the word of God and returning to the word of God and returning to the gospel and kind of deconstructing or removing um, the errors of Roman Catholicism. It, it was a, a massive deconstruction project with the aim of getting back to the Bible, of getting back to what the Bible teaches. Now, if you are in any way deconstructing, but you're not coming back to the Bible, I want to suggest to you that you might be departing rather than deconstructing. This language and this, this movement is new in the life of the church. It's the kind of new teaching, the kind of new doctrine, the kind of different doctrine that, that, that Paul, I think, is concerned about. Now, again, I need to be careful. Not all of it. There's some really good things we need to be deconstructing. We need to be making sure, just for an example, that our, our ideas of gender and our ideas of roles in the church for men and women, for example, in the home, are actually what the Bible requires. There's a healthy way to keep coming back to the Bible and trying to get it right. But now there are also folks who use that same language who are throwing away the Bible and headed off to other ideas that sound good. Let me, let me, let me offer this for us as a church. Someone said to me last week, something I found really helpful. She said, um, sometimes people are attracted to churches because they hear certain kinds of language that they first maybe heard in other contexts. And they're drawn to that church because they're drawn to that language but they don't have the theological roots and the theological ballast beneath it to understand when and where to use that language and when and where that language is healthy. I'll just give you an example. Justice. We care about justice as a church. We, we care to be just people pursuing what's right in the world. We need to be careful that our understanding of justice is rooted in this book, not rooted in the thinking of everybody else who uses the word justice. Could be massive differences. So some people would claim some things to be justice and the pursuit of justice that, in fact, when you look in the book, are contrary to the book. And we have to be people who say, no, actually, that's an injustice. You're actually hurting people in pursuing things that God says are not good. Right? And, and so we live in a cultural moment where words fly by at the speed of tweets and, and, and words get sort of, um, and ideas get kind of dramatized in reels. And, and there are people on our television stations who are using the same language that we are using, but they don't mean what we mean theologically. They don't have the root system that we have theologically. And sometimes as Christians, if we're not rooted theologically, we grab onto the language and we find ourselves drifting toward the world rather than toward God. If we have a, self, uh, a healthy self-watch, we're trying to then be careful of that and to guard against that. How we know we might be doing that? You might be doing that if you give a speaker more points for using those phrases than you give them points for using the Bible. And that, beloved, just might be an indication of itching ears. 
rather than a biblical faith. So we need to be really careful as we think about these three signs of losing the war, that we're not people losing the war, and really careful that we're making a distinction between deconstruction and departing. Let me give you three questions to ask yourselves. If you consider yourself deconstructing in some way, and again, I don't mean to suggest that that's all bad. I mean, that's, we should be reforming our lives according to the word of God. We should be renewing our minds according to the word of God. So if that's what you're doing, amen, hallelujah, keep going. But how do you know that that's what you're doing rather than departing the faith ever so slowly, wandering into vain discussions, wandering into things that are not profitable but speculative? Three questions. Number one, is this idea moving toward or away from accountability? Is it moving me toward or away from accountability, toward spiritual parents, toward spiritual leadership? Number two, is this issue or idea moving me toward or away from, as we've been saying, the Bible's teaching? Does it move me deeper into the Bible or does it cause me to sort of turn my back on the Bible? Number three, does this idea or issue move me toward or away from faith and a good conscience? Does it help me to trust God more and to follow him in faith? Or does it dull the conscience? Does it twist the conscience? Does it suggest to me that things that God's word said are not good, that they are good? Do I wind up calling black, white, and white, black? Those are the three questions at least to be asking if you're on some journey of deconstruction, and if you want to sort of discern the difference between deconstruction and departing, because that proper deconstruction should be leading to a reconstruction according to the word of God. Amen? Well, beloved, last thing to notice here. We're done. I'm out your way. Do you love it when pe- preachers say that? You want them to really mean it, though. Last thing to notice here, last thing to notice here, verse 19. I don't want us to miss this. By rejecting this, all the things in verses 18 and 19, some have made shipwreck of their faith. I I want us to take just a moment to notice the language there. It's active. It's not passive. This is not something that was done to them. It's something they did to themselves. That if, the, if faith were a ship, they pointed that ship right toward the rockiest shoals they could find. And they wrecked themselves on those rocks. I think that in a lot of the sort of current mood in Christian circles, particularly among younger Christians, I think there is maybe a, a, a too high a tendency to assign blame for the weaknesses in our spiritual life to other people and what they did to us. Now, I trust you know that sometimes other people do stuff to you, right? And it's legitimate to resist that, to point that out, to seek accountability, uh, to seek redress. I'm talking about something a little bit different. I'm talking about this passive approach we take to our spiritual lives. 
wherein anything that's happening in our spiritual lives bad, other people are blamed for. And if anything is happening in our spiritual lives that's good, we, we kind of are expecting other people to produce that good in our life. That, that we've almost abandoned a sense of responsibility for, for our walk with Jesus and the things that are included in that walk. And I want to suggest to you that that's, that's maybe the drama meal that we take to make the choppy ride to shipwreck a little more pleasant. We're dulling our conscience and dulling our spiritual lives rather than asking the Lord to quicken us, to make us more responsible rather than less, and to, by his grace, steer toward calm waters rather than rocks. So I hope it's the case that we're not the kind of Christians, again, who look at our lives and see some dissatisfaction with it, and we can't kind of see that we've been the one steering the ship. I hope we're not the kind of Christians who are constantly looking for someone else to blame for any shipwrecking that's happening in our faith. Because, beloved, nobody else can steer your ship. You steer that ship. And I pray that the Lord would make us a church that both collectively and individually, we're helping each other to steer toward calm waters, to steer the ship into the grace and mercy and the safety of Christ. There's plenty of room. It's wide open water. Let's sail in it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would seal it to our hearts. Pray that you would keep us by your word, that you would keep us in good conscience and faith and that you'd keep us from vain talk and idle babble and things that lead to distraction and sometimes to destruction. Well, I pray for that Christian who's been maybe wandering between deconstruction and defeat. I pray that you would, Lord, snatch them over to victory and root them firmly in the truth, that they would indeed be able to reject everything that is that needs to be rejected, but they would hold fast to faith and hold fast to Christ, hold fast to your word where Christ is revealed to us, and hold fast to your people, O oh Lord, despite our many failings. And I pray for those, O oh Lord, who maybe have already gone off like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who run off into sin and run towards shipwreck, Lord. We believe that it's not too late for you and your infinite mercy and grace to convince them of their sin, to, to cause them to, to feel the rough treatment of Satan and to remember that your burden is easy and light. And they can find rest in their souls by coming back to you. So, Lord, grant them grace to return to you, we pray. Make your discipline in their lives effective. And thank you for all us strugglers, Lord. Who are trying to stay on the path, Lord, who recognize that wide is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to life, and 
And with all of our stumblings and fallings and lurching forward and sometimes slipping backwards, Lord, we are, by your grace, endeavoring to stay on that path. And so give us grace to do that. Give us help through our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Give us, Lord, encouragement and strength from your word. And we pray, Lord, help us to walk by faith and, and give us a good conscience as we confess our sins and obey your word. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray, that we might finish the race that we might see you finish what you have started in us. Give us this grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.